and good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet. I'm here in the studio with Laurent Landis and our guests today are Scott Pogency, whose uh, film is Texas Justice about the Brandon Woodruff case, and Richard Ray, who most of us know from Fox 4 News. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. Um, Scott, let's... Thank you, David. Yeah, welcome, Richard. Welcome, guys. Um, Scott, let's start by just talking about the case, because we've been on a number of times, we've talked about it each time, but not everybody uh, knows what this case is. Sure, absolutely. So, basically... Um Dennis and Norma Woodruff were a typical American family living in Rockwall, and they were moving to Heath, or to, they were living in Heath, they were moving to Royce City, and they were in the process of moving when they were brutally murdered. They were shot and stabbed. Uh, very quickly, the Texas Rangers, who were kind of the driving force of the investigation, uh, zeroed in on their son, Brandon Woodruff. And um, through a, uh, we'll call it an investigation, but uh, six days later, Brandon was in jail, and uh, and then three years, three and a half years later, on trial for killing his parents. And you know, the the driving force behind the investigation, uh, we feel, and and uh, I believe we're correct, is that. Uh, the Texas Rangers and the investigators felt like, you know, since Brandon was in the middle of his coming out process and realizing his sexuality that uh, he was hiding it from some people, that basically if you can lie about killing your parents, if you can lie about being gay, then you can lie about killing your parents. And that pretty much drove the investigation, and that's how we feel like Brandon ended up in prison. And it wasn't even that he lied about being gay. His parents knew he was. His parents knew. Well, as far as we know, his dad knew. Um, it's kind of ambiguous as to Just whether to or not his mom knew. But his dad was definitely uh, on board with it, didn't have a problem with it. He was concerned, you know, that his son would, would go through some, uh, you know, persecution and uh, from the you know, uh, the society would look down on him, you know, kind of the same thing that most of uh, straight people feel like, you know, I don't want my son to be gay because I don't want him to have to go through all these hardships and, you know, don't want him to have to deal with uh, society. Um, so he had those type feelings, but he had absolutely no problem whatsoever uh, with his son being gay. And the jaw-dropping thing about this case is that he was convicted with zero physical evidence that tied him to the case, correct? That's the thing that really, you know, kind of drew me into the case in the beginning because when I first started looking into this case and I heard that Brandon was professing his innocence every time that he turned around and all the newspaper articles, all you know, he was saying that he was innocent. And so I started looking into it and I just kept thinking to myself, okay, the next document that I read or the next uh, page of the trial transcript, something is going to point me to the fact of why they convicted this guy. And when I got through all the evidence, when I got through the whole trial transcript, there was absolutely no physical evidence tying him to the crime. There wasn't even any eyewitness. There wasn't even anything that would be considered evidence other than hearsay, innuendo, and character assassination. You know, one of the lack of pieces of evidence is the phone records that would have proven where he was because he was on his cell phone 
but coincidentally, the phone records for that particular day are missing. Yeah, exactly. There was uh, 14 hours uh, that were missing out of Brandon's phone records. The police subpoenaed about, I want to say, I think it was like 21 days of his phone records. And it just so happened that the one day that that this happened, that they feel like the murders happened, Brandon had 14 hours of, uh, of those phone records that were missing. And it just so happened that it was 14 hours in the time that Brandon was trying to prove where he was. Now, missing from... The phone records are going to be crucial to this case, absolutely. The, uh, uh, it, uh, Scott can tell you more about this, too, but we've also since found out that uh, all the phone records that the Ranger gathered, uh, what was turned over on everybody else was the original phone records. What was turned over on Brandon's phone records is a cut-and-paste copy of something. We don't know what, but uh, I think the phone evidence is going to be crucial in proving his innocence. And, and, and even what the state argued in court, he didn't have time. He simply did not have time to do what they say he did. He's accounted for for all but 14 minutes, if you really put it. Uh, you know, really put a, a, a hard look at the, where he was and who he was calling. He simply could not have done it in that time period. Now, what, did, did the defense get the uh, phone records from the state, or did they get it from the, directly from the phone company? Because it seems like the phone company, uh, whatever carrier he was using, would still have copies of that. Is that not right? Well, with Within any any criminal investigation, the state is the one that has the burden to prove that the defendant is guilty. So they are the ones that are responsible for the principal investigation. And in this case, the subpoena was for the phone companies to turn the records over to the U.S. Marshal's Office, and then the U.S. Marshal's Office was to turn the records over to the state, who then turned them over to the defense. So by the time, so by the time the defense got them, they'd already gone through two different hands, and what um, they were not able to realize this at the time because the technology just didn't exist. But the phone records expert in my investigation and going back and talking to him has realized through a new process of uh, analyzing the phone records that the records that were turned over were not the originals, the ones that were turned over at Brandon's were not the originals. They were actually authored by the Texas, Mar the uh, U.S. Marshal's Office. And that's different in the fact that all of the other phone records, you know, they subpoenaed probably about 10 different people's phone records, everyone that was even close to the case. Every other record was the original, but the ones that were turned over um, that were Brandon's were, like uh, Richard said, a kind of a copy and paste. And, you know, unfortunately at the time, the technology didn't exist to realize that and the defense didn't realize that they just assumed that the state was giving them the original phone record. Mm. That's new evidence, isn't it? It's very possible. Huh. It's, uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't, I can't say, but I will say that, uh, that the lawyers are definitely looking at it. Huh. Um, okay, well, that's the basis of the case. Richard, how did you become involved with this, and how did you meet Scott? It's actually kind of an interesting story. Uh, 
since I retired from Fox 4 in May of 2019, I've sort of uh, gone full-time doing what I dreamed of doing as a kid. I'm playing baseball and, and uh, making movies and uh, some acting commercials and that kind of thing. But I've been looking around for a project that I could really believe in, and I got an email from uh, this guy named, really odd name, Scott Colden or something like that. <laughs> yeah, we can never pronounce it either. I can't, Scott. <laughs> through uh, something called Backstage, and he was looking for some people to do a reenactment for a documentary he was working on. And I, I wrote him a polite note about that, and I wasn't really interested in doing that. And then he wrote back and said, well, wait a minute, I didn't realize it was the Richard Ray, and since apparently he's uh, one of those folks that had watched me on TV for 36 years in, in, in Dallas. But, well, so then I got to talking to him about the project, and, and I... I looked at the uh, two-and-a-half-hour uh, rough-cut documentary he did and listened to some of his podcasts, and I thought, this is, there's something here. This kid is obviously uh, no physical evidence whatsoever that he did it. The arrest affidavit that was filed on him that actually got him put in jail at, in, at, at six days into this case was full of lies, stuff that's been proven wrong, and had nothing about the murders. How they got him arrested on that affidavit is just a shock to me. Anyway, I get kind of excited about this when I talk about it because at the time I thought it looked like a good case. So I went to him and he'd sort of been struggling for a couple of years. He's been working on it a long time and, and, and I thought I could help him get it to the next level. So I coached him about that and he said, you know, would you join me in this thing? So we've actually uh, uh, formed a corporation, an LLC, and I had just enough connections to get us to a production company that we think is going to get us on a major streaming network. Um, they, I don't know how much we need to get into this, but in order to get on a Netflix or uh, Amazon Prime or Showtime or HBO or any of those, you can't just come in off the streets. You, they'll only work with production companies and people that they worked with before. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you have to find a production company that can, can pitch it for you. And that means you have to convince the production company that it's worth pitching. And we, uh, uh, God bless our efforts, we, we have done that now. We signed a contract about three weeks ago with a production company called Virgil Films Entertainment. And, uh, they specialize on, on, on pitching documentaries to, uh, Netflix and Prime and, and all those other big name ones that we're hoping to take a look at ours. So, that's how I got involved in it, and I, I just want to say one other thing. When I first looked at this, I thought, you know, this guy's probably innocent. The deeper I get into the case, it just makes me angry. Mm-hmm. The, the investigation is so sloppy and non-existent. The, the Texas Ranger clearly decided Brandon is the guy who did it, and then set out to prove that Brandon did it, which is the wrong way to do an investigation. And he never really found anything that proved he did it. And he just refused to listen to anybody who had information and might be pointing to somebody else. I and mean, there's a lot of somebody else's out there. Um, one case in particular really, really bothers me. There was an ag extension agent out in, uh, in Lockwell that had worked with Brandon and some other young men uh, in FFA and 4-H. And he knew them, knew them real well. And there had become a real feud between Brandon and another kid named Mike. Uh, 
And uh, after Brandon was, in fact, this guy was one of the ones that the family called and actually went to the house, broke in, and, and discovered the body. So he's that close a friend to the families. When Brandon was arrested, he went to the ranger and said, You're, Brandon's not your guy. You need to be looking at these other guys. And the ranger's response was to threaten him to say that he had somehow had an inappropriate relationship with Brandon and using that as a threat and then indicated that he, wasn't, he didn't want to hear anything that I had to say. Wow. It's just a lot of stuff like this in the case that just makes me angry. Mm-hmm. Well, th- the most obvious part of it is if you just sit down with the timeline, from the time Brandon was, or Brandon's parents were killed at about 10.30, was it, in the evening? They don't, they don't really know when, he, when they were killed. The only reason that they have to go back and say this is when we think that they were killed is because that is the quote-unquote time unaccounted for that Brandon, that they couldn't pin on Brandon. So anything after 10.30 uh, would exonerate Brandon completely because he had alibis all the way up until the time the bodies were found. So... That's what the, that's the reason that they believe that the bodies were found or that this were killed between um, 9.30 and 10.30 because that's the only time they could pin it on Brandon. The medical examiner was never able to actually give a, a firm or even estimated time of death, just basically that it had, it had been more than 24 hours and uh, they found the bodies about two days after. It's a perfect example of uh, the ranger, you know, fitting the evidence to uh, making the evidence fit Brandon because uh, Scott hired a, a highly respected um, expert in pretty good at crime scenes and not analyzing what happened. And there was what they didn't find the bodies until uh, Tuesday evening. So this is like Sunday night, Tuesday evening. Nobody knew they were there, although somebody did. We'll get into that in the documentary too, but. Um, the, uh, uh, there's, there was evidence that there was still water in the bathtub and the sink when the uh, bodies were discovered. And that expert who went back and looked at that, he said the longest he could keep any water, uh, in a bathtub or a sink, I mean, again, just, you know, it just left there was moisture in there. It was about 12 hours. Well, that means the murder, somebody was cleaning up in there. 12 hours before the body was, the bodies were found, that means that the murders might have occurred on Monday or Tuesday. And, uh, the other thing about that is that both, both victims were shot and stabbed multiple times. Brandon, all 140 pounds of him, his dad was huge, somehow apparently under the um, Rangers theory was able to shoot six or seven shots and do, I, I don't know how many stab wounds, and again, left no DNA, no blood, no evidence at all. Didn't, you know, he had to be doing it with both hands because the weapons were never, were never set down. And, and the weapons, of course, have never been discovered. There's just such a lack of evidence in this case. It just astounds me that the jury. Uh, normally when there are two weapons it's two people who've done it one person doesn't normally have two weapons right right that's a very very weird thing 
So we need to take a break. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Laron Landis. We're talking to Richard Ray and Scott Pogancy about the Brandon Woodruff case. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. Uh, we're talking about the Brandon Woodruff case. Yes, we've talked about it before, but every time Scott comes back, uh, it's with new evidence that Brandon couldn't possibly have committed this crime. Um, and new hope. And, and new hope. Uh, Brandon or Richard, did you have news for us to announce? Hmm? Scott. Uh, Scott, well, yes. No, Scott, I guess we're going to talk about it. The uh, uh, really big deal. Um, um, about 10 days ago, we got word from the uh, Innocence Project of Texas that they are, quote, full tilt taking on this case. Full That's tilt. awesome news. Yeah. Now, I looked at the Innocence Project's website, and it said that um, they exonerate people, uh, they exonerate the wrongly convicted through DNA evidence. Are there other ways that they exonerate, or is there some DNA evidence now? Actually, the Innocence Project of Texas, which is separate, they work with uh, the Innocence Project, the, the national group, uh, they tell me that actually um, about 90% of the cases do not involve DNA. Uh, so that's that was my thought when, when we first approached them. Scott told me that uh, the Innocence Project had expressed interest in the story Correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but three or four years ago. But then there was some disconnect, and it never happened. But, uh, in fact, I called uh, my friend uh, Raphael McDonald at the... Uh, at uh, uh, Resource Center. I'm sorry. Yeah, Resource Center. Mm -hmm. And just was talking to him about that a little bit. And he... Cause I, I, obviously, I think uh, that uh, uh, community needs to get involved in this. Uh, it needs to be, have a wider... Uh, a wider hearing, and he had suggested that uh, some people that I could get uh, would help me get to the Innocence uh, Project. So we made some calls, and uh, um, they looked at the case, and their board of directors met, and the result was that they're they're taking it on, and they're currently going to go at it with everything they got. And we just we're so pleased and excited about that. And the big thing about that, David, is that, you know, they are able to bring in, even if um, they're not the, the main attorneys, which in this case they wouldn't be because Brandon already has a uh, an appellate attorney that's been working on this for a few years, but that has run into kind of a stalemate because the things that need to be done in order to prove Brandon's innocence, because this is not a simple case. This is not like you were saying, a DNA case where we could just, hey, let's just test this DNA. It'll prove that Brandon's innocent and we'll get him out. There's not um, a lot of that, that that we can do. There is a little bit, and we can go into that if you want to. But, uh, but basically, the investigation has reached kind of a stalemate because of lack of funds. You know, Brandon's grandmother is the one that was funding all of this, and, you know, she's not a rich lady, and none of us are rich people. And so... We kind of ran, ran into a stalemate because they're, you know, the experts that you have to hire and, uh, the people that, you know, need to kind of travel in to testify and all of that, you know, that requires money. And one of the things that the Innocence Project brings on when they sign on to a case is that they're able to provide those resources so then the investigation can go further instead of just, you know, kind of stop it. And Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
Hasn't Brandon exhausted his appeals already? His what they call affordative uh, appeals are exhausted. Um, so those are basically, you know, kind of your automatic uh, appeals that you're afforded to go as far as you can. He's already gone to the Supreme to the uh, Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. They've refused to hear it. He's gone to the all the way to the Supreme Court on the Sixth Amendment violation. They refused to hear it. Um, so yeah, he's exhausted those afforded appeals. The only thing that he has left is what's called a writ of habeas corpus, or a lot of people refer to it as a writ of actual innocence, where you have to bring in new evidence that shows that you are completely innocent. It's no longer, you know, it's no longer a technicality. You know, the judge should have said this when he said that, or the defense right. should have done this when they did that. It's, it's you have to go in. And you have to prove that you're innocent. And one of the difficult things about this case is, you know, it's very difficult to, to use the information that they gained in their, in the investigation to prove you're innocent when they really never proved that he was guilty in the first place. No, it's such a circumstantial case that, it, that it's really, it is difficult to appeal because basically, uh, they were able to, convince the jury that, um, you know, if you can lie about being gay, you can lie about killing the parents, and then never really presented any evidence that he killed his parents. So it, it, I, tell you, I think it means uh, the lawyers they try to do an appeal in a tough situation because the Scott says there's really no evidence to attack because they didn't have any evidence. Uh, um, one of the problems is it would be appealed to the same court uh, it would start out at the same court that convicted him, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> and as you know, the, uh, the the judge that is in the court where Brandon was uh, convicted is the ADA at the time that actually violated his Sixth Amendment rights by uh, requesting phone calls between Brandon and his attorney while he was in the Hunt County Jail. So she's now the sitting judge in that court, so it would automatically be uh, challenged and, and she would be recused, uh, but it's unclear as to whether or not it would be transferred to like a, a Dallas County court or if they would just bring in another judge and stay in that court. That, that part of it's kind of unclear, but, uh, but yeah, she would, <laughs> she would definitely not be the judge hearing the case for sure. Oh, so so she would have to recuse herself. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a clear conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah. I know there's a clear conflict of interest. I'm asking whether she'll honestly <laughs> recuse herself. Well, I, if she didn't, I think there would be a public outcry like you've never heard before. <laughs> right. If she was in Dallas, I'd expect that, but this is not in Dallas. <laughs> So you know, it's it's one of the ironies of this case is that the uh, the, the ADA that um, that violates his Sixth Amendment rights becomes the judge in that court. It's just there's so many different uh, things that happen in this case that just make you want to smack your head. And you you went over it, but it was real briefly. This is a major thing. What did uh, the assistant DA actually do? So she directed the head jailer at the time, his name is Curtis Neal, uh, she directed him to record all of Brandon's phone calls and turn them over to her. And she specifically requested 
the calls between Brandon and his attorney's office because he was in the Hunt County Jail for three and a half years as they were waiting for trial on a million dollar bond, so he wasn't able to get out. And so she wanted to hear all of those calls. When they turn them over, normally what's supposed to happen is if the ADA gets calls from the jail that are between the defendant and the attorney, they are supposed to stop, tell the court what happened, call the defense, tell them what happened, say, hey, we listened to about 30 seconds of this one call, we didn't realize that it was an attorney-client call, and they're supposed to have a hearing, and more, you know, that's kind of the way it's supposed to happen. But they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Not only did they uh, listen to every single call that he made between his, his attorneys and himself, but they made 42 pages of notes on what Brandon was talking about mm. with his attorney. Wow. And those notes have never been released, which is another travesty in this case. In fact, there's so many twists and turns to it. That's why it's going to make a really interesting docuseries. There is a lot of twists and turns and just... Uh, Scott said, scratch your head kind of thing. It's just all over the story. That was one of his appeals. That's what I'm not understanding, why a higher court wouldn't even look at that. Well, I'll try to, uh, I'll try to kind of sum it up in a Reader's Digest version. Um, whenever you challenge a ruling, so the trial court, Judge Beacom, he ruled that it was a Sixth Amendment violation, and his ruling was that any information found from those calls uh, would be barred. They would not be able to use them at all. Well, the problem is the defense stands up and says, well, okay, then tell us what was made in these 42 pages of notes. The prosecution stands up and says, no, that was work product. You can't see that. Uh, ultimately, the judge ruled that, they, that the defense could not have access to those notes. So here we go, he gets, uh, he gets convicted, so then he has a, an appeal. Well, he, his, it goes through federal court because it's a, it's a uh, violation of his U.S. constitutional rights, so it goes to federal court. It went to the first, the first kind of uh, level of, of federal court, and that judge basically said, you know, there's all these differing opinions around the country. Some federal courts have said if you violate someone's Sixth Amendment right, it's an automatic dismissal. Some courts have said no, you know, because there's 11 uh, federal uh, circuit courts around the United States. Mm -hmm. Some of those courts have said no, it's, you have to prove that you were harmed. Just because there was a constitutional violation doesn't mean that you automatically get, you know, your indictment thrown he's out. He's been in prison then, since, he's, since he was, what, 19? He's been harmed. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that, but that's the. But I'm talking about the being harmed in trial. Mm -hmm. Like you know, like you had. Uh, so basically, what the courts have said, what they ruled was that since Judge Beacom threw out any evidence, and he uh, that was gained through those calls, that they they did what they call cured the taint, or they they cured the harm that was that was done to him, or the violation that was done to him. So then they appealed it to the Fifth Circuit, or uh, yeah, the Fifth Circuit Court down in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. They basically said the same thing. You know, if you have, if if he would have been in, let's say, uh, New England, and he would have been in that Circuit Court, he probably would have had it thrown out. But down in Louisiana, 
you know, I think, and, and unfortunately at the time that he went, uh, that he was presented, I think Trump had just appointed like six more, six different justices on that court. So <laughs> there was pretty much no chance that they were going to overturn a murder conviction. Hmm. So then they appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court, and a lot of people don't understand that, you know, the Supreme Court only hears about two out of a hundred cases that are appealed to it. So they ultimately decided not to hear the case. We felt like we would have a good chance to be heard by the Supreme Court because there is all of these differing opinions all around the country. That's kind of the Supreme Court's job, is to settle disputes among these lower courts. Correct. But... They didn't, unfortunately, they just didn't hear the case. So, uh, and of course, once the Supreme Court turns it down, you don't have anywhere else to go. Right. Huh. Um, is there anything that can be done? You know, the phone records is the one that, has, that bothered me first because the timeline would have shown that he wouldn't have had time to murder his parents using multiple weapons. Uh, it was a very bloody crime scene, and part of the house was cleaned up. So in about 30 minutes, to have murdered his parents, and with no regret, no remorse, nothing, just gone about cleaning up all the mess, and then getting over to North Dallas to pick up a friend into Village Station, where he was later that evening, um, it just couldn't have happened in this time period. Um, are... Is there something appealable in the phone records part of it? Well, let me just say that, uh, you know, luckily, even though there were these 14 hours that were missing, um, they do pick up and they start at the point where Brandon was on the way to pick up that, fr that friend in North Dallas. So using the records that were actually there and where he pinged off of that cell tower, backing things up to, you know, having to drive here for this amount of time, having to drive there for that amount of time, we were able to forensically prove that Brandon only had 14 minutes uh, to do all of those things. And that's one of the things that we will point out in the docuseries is all of the things that Brandon would have had to have done according to the state's theory. And, you know, as you said, we're talking about shooting both of his parents, stabbing both of his parents multiple times, walking through, walking with so much blood all over himself and all over the murder weapon that blood was literally dripping all the way to the bathroom, to the guest bathroom. And then, mysteriously, in the guest bathroom, there's not one drop of blood. So obviously, he would have had to have cleaned up that bathroom because you can't just stop dripping blood right when you hit the threshold of the bathroom. Right. So he would have had to have had gotten blood all over the bathroom and then spent that time cleaning it up, taking a shower, changing clothes, and then washing off the murder weapon. That's another thing that we can talk about is that, you know, this sword that was found had like two drops of blood underneath the hilt of a handle. So he would have had to have washed off the rest of it, um, put it in some kind of bag, and and clean himself up so much that there was never any DNA discovered on any of his clothes he was wearing that night, none of the, the trucks, the, the vehicles that he was driving, the, I mean, it, the bag that he had that night with all of his stuff in it, not one drop of DNA, drop blood or DNA or anything 
in any of those items. You know, the, so, one of the most, the DNA part of it, that, that's in the investigation um, of it is, that's the part that strikes me is just is jaw dropping because they did the investigation in the dark. And if you can you talk about that a little bit. And, you know, I've seen enough crime shows, real crime shows where when there's a, whenever there's a, a murder this heinous, it's rare that there's zero DNA left somewhere at that crime scene. Even if somebody went to the bathroom to clean themselves up, there's got to be some DNA somewhere. But again, how could they find it in the dark? And um, even if they found Brandon's DNA there, that's not that uncommon because he had been in a house that is his parents' house. So do you know if they found any foreign DNA and they're just not saying? Well, I know that, uh, that the uh, crime scene being filmed in the dark is something that... Uh, Richard's pretty passionate about, so I'll let him answer that question. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, good. I'm not the only one. <laughs> it's it's a, it's another example of just the strangest, most incompetent investigation I've ever seen. The ranger ordered the Texas, uh, uh, the Crump uh, County Sheriff's deputies to shoot this thing in the dark. So they're wandering around in the house with a flashlight. Uh, and one of them's picking up uh, stuff he shouldn't be picking up without a glove on. They're knocking mm-hmm. stuff over. Uh, the ranger's feeling was he wanted to show the scene as it was discovered to the jury. That makes no sense. It makes for really, really, really eerie film video. I mean, it's it's going to be a major uh, part of the story. When you watch this eerie, dark flashlight videos that comes across the bodies and that kind of stuff, it's just really eerie and makes for great television, but... It just as an investigative tool is absolutely absurd. And um, just one of the instances, well, it just doesn't make any sense why they would do it that way. But uh, there's a lot of stuff in there. And the other thing is, is, if you're going to do that, if you're going to, you know, film it in the dark, then at least turn the lights on and go back and film it with the lights on. You right. Know? And uh, their excuse, I think, was that they ran out of battery. And, uh, oh, wow. You know, yeah, it was, it was just, this whole thing is just the Keystone Cops investigation, and we cannot wait um, to <laughs> highlight that in the docuseries. And the other thing is they found absolutely no evidence of any blood whatsoever in Brandon's car, right? Yeah, yeah, they had the FBI, as I, as I recall, the FBI, they looked all through his car, all through the bags that he had, everything, never found, uh, never found any forensics at all that would link him to this crime. There is one possible DNA route that we should probably talk about. In the crime scene photographs, uh, Brandon's mother is clutching her right hand, it, it, it appears to be uh, a defensive kind of wound and stuff in that right hand, but she's got three or three or four long, blonde strands of hair in her hand. You can clearly see that in the crime photo. Mm-hmm. And the defense had asked the state to please run DNA because nobody involved in this case under their theory had long blonde hair. But Brandon's was short and had been dyed black. Uh, nobody had long blonde hair in this. So whose long blonde hair is in his mother's hand? That DNA has never been tested, but there's a problem with that. And 
I'm not sure it's a, it's a hurdle we can get over. And maybe the Innocence Project or somebody can, but they gathered all this hair, but because they didn't single out those blonde hair, we think possibly that all the hair, including her hair, is all mixed together and somehow pulling three or four strands out of there for separate DNA testing may not be possible. Hmm. They, the family and Scott did get involved in, in having some very expensive DNA uh, uh, done on some hair samples, but we think they were just Mormon's hair samples. Hmm. Scott, correct me if I'm wrong on any of that. We need to take a break. We need, we'll talk more about this when we get back. Uh, you're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. We'll be back with more with Richard Ray and Scott Pogancy right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. Um, Richard and Scott, I'm not sure if I had told you this, Scott. We end our shows right now at about 10 to the hour because we're doing a good job keeping each other safe here at the station. So we're wiping everything down, changing out the windscreens, uh, just keeping it safe. Um, so we have about 10 more minutes. Um, what evidence were we just talking about talking before about the, the break? The hairs that was in his mother's hand. And... Um, yeah. That, you know, that, that has always been one of the things that, I mean, you know, as I said before, there's so many things that just make you want to scratch your head or whatever, but one of the things is that Brandon's mom, Norma, had these long blonde hairs in her right hand, and it would have, you know, that's the hand that had the defensive wounds, it had scratches, it had the bullet that, that was shot through her hand, so... There was some kind of fight or struggle with that. And, you know, originally, when, the, if you look at the crime scene photo, when that body was transferred to the Southwest Institute of Forensic Sciences that does the autopsy, uh, the hands were, were, uh, covered in, in bags, like, were like brown paper bags and taped up and all that. So when, so when they got to, the place that did the autopsies, they were separated. However, when they undid those bags and they did the autopsy, they took those hairs and mixed them with the hairs that were in her, uh, Norma's left hand. And that's always been an issue for me because now we can't just go in and say, hey guys, we want to test these long blonde hairs. We have to basically just say, hey, we want to test the hair and it's up to the, the prosecution to go in and select a hair. So you've got these three or four or five long blonde hairs mixed in with all these two or three hundred of Norma's uh, hairs from her left hand over her own head. So, you know, at a cost of $3,500 each, you can imagine that's, mm. that's you know, millions of dollars. And you just have to test each strand until you came up with one strand that was different? Oh. Because they won't, it, now it would be different if they would say, okay, let's, someone from the defense, someone from the prosecution, let's go out and, you know, set all of these hairs on a table and let the defense choose which one they want to test. But unfortunately, that's not the way it works. <laughs> it would have been, it would have been a lot easier if they would have just kept those hairs separated. You know, here's a bag of the hairs that were in her right hand, and here's a bag of the hairs that were in her left hand. But imagine you're an investigator, and you're really looking for the evidence to point you to who did the crime. 
wouldn't those long blonde hairs jump out at you? Wouldn't you immediately have them tested for DNA? It just makes no sense. None. So also during an investigation, did they ever even think about or try and investigate anybody else? Um, well, it took them about six months after Brandon was in jail to even get the phone records in this case. So, you know, one of the things that if you look at the interview between Brandon and, and Ranger Collins, one of the things that, that him, that Ranger Collins and Terry Jones, the, the uh, other investigator, sheriff's office investigator was in there, they sat there and promised Brandon that they were going to look into his alibis and they were going to look into the phone records and they were going to look into the toll records, you know, because Brandon's sitting there telling them, guys, I didn't do this. My friends can tell you I was with them. I mean, he was begging them to look at the, he was begging them to look at all the evidence, anything. Look at it, look at it, look at it. And they promised him that they would. And then Ranger Collins puts in his report that as soon as Brandon got up and walked out of the room, he went to his office and started writing the arrest warrant. Wow. So that's, it, it's just, you know, it, it just one of those things that it's like, why would you sit there and, and be so early on in the investigation? Why would you not check out all of these other other leads? Underscore that. Six months after he arrested Brandon, he finally got around to checking the phone records out. The other thing about that is that uh, one of the major things in the arrest affidavit that he put in there was that had come from this Mike, who was an enemy of Brandon's and uh, Mike's mother, and they had claimed that on, on Brandon's MySpace page, he had written that he hated his effing parents who wanted them effing dead. It was an absolute lie. In fact, on the MySpace page where they said this, Brandon was writing how much he loved his parents. LOL, really, I do. So all this evidence that went into this arrest affidavit, was not all of it, but a major part of it was false. Mm-hmm. And he was arrested on false pretenses and, and no evidence of, of the, the crime being committed. And I think that's important to point out because Milan was asking about uh, if they investigated anyone else. And, you know, there were so many signs that showed in the beginning that they should have caught on to and should have investigated other people. This uh, friend, Mike Etherington, that, you know, Richard was just referring to, him and his mother did so much suspicious stuff in the very beginning. His mom called the investigators the morning after the bodies were found before they even finished the autopsy and said, hey, I have some information about the Woodruff murder. And the question is, well, wait a second, how do you know it's been a murder? The family doesn't even know it's been a murder. The investigators at this point, they're at the autopsy. They don't even know that it's been a murder. Yeah, so that's, that's really suspicious. Yeah, and there's just, so, yeah, so Mike and his mom did so much stuff that was just so suspicious that, you know, the Rangers just didn't pay attention to it because they had their, their sights set on Brandon. And the ag, uh, the ag official that had worked with all these kids, Brandon was part of a group that they called themselves the shit kickers. There were four of them. And he'd fallen out with Mike and the other two shit kickers. And uh, that's what Todd Williams wanted to go to talk to the ranger about was, wait a minute, you need, you need to look at some of these other guys. And again, his response was to threaten a married man with children 
was threatened that he was going to tell people that uh, that he had some sort of an inappropriate relationship with Brandon, which wow. uh, I don't know where he got that because nobody else has ever made that allegation that I know of. We have just one minute left. Um, the Innocence Project is coming in to look at this case and do what they can. Did they give you a timeline uh, or any idea how long this whole process normally would take? They did not. And, it, and something like this, you know, that with the shoddy investigation and uh, with the fact that we're trying to prove a case that's not DNA, that's just a culmination of evidence, you know, it's a very difficult case, but I will say that the, the, the appellate attorney that's been working on this for about four years now, um, I believe that he's pretty much done the investigation and gotten to the point where once the Innocence Project is able to come in and provide these resources that he needs, uh, hopefully they'll be able to do that sooner rather than later. In fact, I think this is going to speed up the process a lot. I envision this taking maybe a couple of years to go through, but once the Innocence Project got on board with it, I, in fact, Scott and I have told ourselves, we got to get busy on this. we got to finish this film uh, because there may, be, there may be a season two. Well, we're, look, we're looking forward to having Brandon on the show here in the studio. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be yeah, awesome. Would be great and we're counting on you to bring him here. But as the uh, information develops... Come on back and uh, let's talk about it some more. And if anybody, David, if anybody wants to know more, they can always go to freebrandon.org. That has all the information on the film, all the information on the case. Uh, it's just freebrandon.org. Thank you. Well, I just want to yeah. encourage all your listeners, get involved in this case. Brandon needs you. The community's got to rally around him. His family's rallied around him. There are a number of friends in the in, in uh, that area that have ra rallied around him, but we all need to rally around this kid. And, and I agree. That's why I we've agree. been having Scott back uh, so that the information is yeah, getting thank out you there. So much. Yeah. Um, good luck on your work on this. Thanks, uh, Scott. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. Thank you. For all of us here yeah, at Lambda Weekly, you. have a good week. A one, a two, a you know what to do. Says who? Till three.